0: Welcome to Wholesale Change, the webcast and podcast from Distribution Strategy Group, where we provide thought leadership for wholesale change agents like you. Because if you're on this broadcast, you probably are a wholesale change agent. My name is Ian Heller. I'll be your co host today, along with my business partner, my good friend, the prophet of profits and the doctor of distribution, Jonathan Bine, PhD. Hello, Jonathan. How are you today? Flattered and honored as usual to be working with you, Ian Heller. <laughs> it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. So we have a great show today, but we have been like rushing pell-mell to get this one put together, huh? Well, if these guys would get their earnings results in earlier, we'd be just fine. Yeah, or we scheduled the show a week later. Uh, but so Granger announced this morning, we're going to talk about them briefly. And so we were literally on their earnings call that started an hour ago. <laughs> um And uh, listening to some of the commentary before we had to rush off and finish those slides, uh, Amazon announced yesterday, and of course, they had huge news that we'll get into in a minute. So it's been a crazy couple of days in earnings announcements. I mean, Amazon by itself, it just has so much you can barely absorb it all. Uh, So uh, let's jump into it. But a couple of things before we start. Uh, One is that we're delighted to report that Wholesale Change is brought to you by Epicor. For nearly 50 years, Epicor has helped distributors stay ahead with flexible, powerful solutions designed to increase sales, streamline operations, and improve customer experience. Epicor's industry leading ERP solutions are built specifically to meet the unique needs of wholesalers. With everything you need to grow your sales, profits, and productivity while distancing yourself from the competition, Epicor is focused on the things that matter to you work queues, PO variance queues, kidding, assembly and production orders, advanced inventory forecasting, VMI and special project pricing. They build their software using industry best practices and 50 years of distribution experience. Almost as much as I have. But Epicor's solutions are far more than just tools for pick, pack, and ship. Fully cloud-based with modern UI, Epicor offers complete, robust e-commerce solutions, powerful BI and analytical tools, modern API and EDI, value-added services, WMS, virtual assistant, and much more. You can learn more about how Epicor helps thousands of wholesalers succeed by visiting epicore.com. And also, since we threw these numbers together so quickly, we just want to share a brief disclaimer. So if you're on a podcast, listen closely. The information shared on the wholesale chain show is not intended to be a source of advice or financial analysis. With, financial analysis with respect to the material presented and the information contained in this website do not constitute investment advice. So, and that's another way of saying boy, we sure threw this stuff together. So we think it's right, but double check. All right. So the first company that we're going to talk about, and there aren't a lot of words on this page, but boy, the numbers and words are remarkable. Why don't you walk us
1: through uh, their sales? So their fourth quarter numbers were 125 billion. That's B, billion. Uh, that was a represented a 43 plus percent growth over fourth quarter 2019 total number for the year came in at 386 billion um operating margins were down slightly um gross margins were also down slightly then in the earnings call they they talked about some of the pressure from the pandemic uh in bringing down some of the margins um their market cap is at a really frothy, just under 1.7 trillion as of yesterday. Is that right? That's incredible.
0: Remember when we talked about, you know, Gashi will be the first company to a trillion dollars. And you're, you're telling me that they're at 1.7 trillion now.
1: 1.7. Yeah. I mean, I, actually, if I look at the next, so if I look starting at distributors in our sector, um, sort of pure play distributors, you know, the, the highest valuation is, is 38 billion so they could go buy a whole gaggle of distributors with their market cap if they wanted to. And that market cap is an 82% increase over uh fourth quarter 2019.
0: Yeah, I think their their full year sales were up like 36 or 38% or something, right? Yes. So they grew up from 282 billion to 300 and what would you say 86 billion in 86 one year. 86 billion. Yes. In one year. So I so we talked about this yesterday when we were preparing for the call, Jonathan. But I think we agree, unless you go back 100 years to Standard Oil or somebody and restate their growth in modern dollars, you probably could not find a company that grew you know, 36% off a $280 billion sale. I mean, there have only been a few companies that size anyway, ever. But I mean, if, that would be impressive growth, growth if you were a $50 million company. And then get it off of $280
1: something billion. That's Absolutely staggering. Yeah, it, it's it's really hard to imagine any other company in any other secti- sector today that could have that kind of growth.
0: Right, right. So. Now, in the middle of all this, the big announcement yesterday, despite the, uh, you know, the unbelievable financial performance, and we're going to get to a couple more aspects of that in a minute. But the big news yesterday was that Jeff Bezos, uh, some article said he stepped down. I prefer I to say he stepped up from CEO to executive chairman. Um and they named uh, the the head of AWS as his successor, Andy Jerry. Is that his name? Uh, Jairus. Um, and uh, so, I, sorry for not knowing that. But uh, so, Bezos is stepping out of the CEO role. Now, what do you think of this? I mean, I, I was surprised. I assume you were
1: too. Yeah. I, well, I was surprised at just that it happened. Um, but, you know, if we look at all of the other big tech companies, they've had a similar evolution, right? Um, Gates stepped out of Microsoft um, the the guys stepped out of Google. Um, there was a successor to Steve Jobs at apple um so in in many ways, it's a natural progression for a company at the stage of of growth and maturity
0: yeah, I, you know it's what's interesting is that every now and then you get a CEO who can start a a business in their garage and then grow it to be this gigantic public company. But most of the time, entrepreneurs at some point in time kind of run out of their management expertise and they hire a sort of a big company CEO to come in and run the company for them. Nothing wrong with that. But Bezos is one of those rare people like Michael Dell or or Bill Gates, who was able to start the business in a garage and make it, in this case, the most valuable company on the history of the planet, I believe and still run it. And yeah. that's an amazing skill set. So his skill set must have grown as the company's
1: portfolio yeah. of work- Yeah. I mean, the, you know, you know, the way venture folks look at it, at a, at a CEO is, is exactly as you described. This is somebody who is, who is an entrepreneurial who can get us to into market. And this is, and then there's another category of somebody who can scale the business. And what you're saying is that he's done both brilliantly and he scaled it beyond anything anybody could imagine.
0: Yeah. And I read his comments about what he was going to do now. And he says, you know, I'm not stepping away. I want to focus more on blue origin, you know, the rocket company and the Washington post and some other things that are, that are, you know, near and dear to his heart. uh, So he can spend some more time on those things, which will probably make all those things succeed in a bigger way because there's nobody like Bezos Uh, as critical as we are of Amazon business. Sometimes there is nobody like Bezos. Right. Um, And, uh, uh, he also said he'll still be there for one-way door decisions. He'll be participating in those. And so if you haven't read the Amazon leadership principles, you're missing out you should read them. And one of them is that, I think this is in their principles, but if not, it's something that they talk about a lot where there are two kinds of decisions, one-way doors and two-way doors. And the one-way door decisions are, hey, you make a commitment to this, to this decision and it's it's gonna change the company in a big way. It's really hard to get out of. You can't just back away from it. And then there are two-way door decisions. And so Amazon views one-way door decisions as things like acquisitions. You go and buy a company, that's the example he uses in his quote. If you're gonna make an acquisition, then that's a one-way door decision because you can't go back once the deal is done, or at least it's really expensive and 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 hard to get out of it. But a lot of two-way door decisions like trying new, you know, launching new products or whatever, or new services, mm-hmm. those are two-way door decisions and it should be easier to make those decisions. And I would say, When I read that in Amazon's leadership principles, I would say that generally speaking, I I haven't been in a company that has tried to classify decisions in those ways. Mm -hmm. They've applied the same criteria to both. And I I think that's an important distinction that they're making at Amazon. Now, they they also had their earnings released, their 10K. Uh, And so, you know, one of the problems with Amazon, if you compete with them in the distributor space is they don't disclose the results of Amazon business, right? So the speculation around their results depending on whether you talk to Applico or Royal bank of Canada or Merrill Lynch, et cetera, is, you know, you know, they're on a track to be $32 billion or 50 something billion or 70 something billion in gross merchandise value by 2023. That's a huge difference, right? So nobody knows how big Amazon business is and they're not required to disclose it because you know, this is the, you know, the SEC's rules aren't really made to account for companies of, enormous scale like so for example there's an SEC disclosure rule that says that once a business unit equals 10 percent of revenues uh, income or assets roughly then you have to disclose the performance of it right so that's probably an oversimplification but that's roughly the
1: rule so So, but so by that by that metric then if mm -hmm. if we go by revenue then we know Amazon is no business is no larger than 38 billion if that if that were the metric, right?
0: If that's the metric, then they would have had to disclose it by, by now if it was thirty-eight billion. Right. And but they're growing so fast. And you know, so you think about like, you know, Granger is roughly a twelve billion-dollar company, right? So if they had a two billion-dollar subsidiary, they would have to disclose it, mm-hmm. or even one and a half billion. But but Amazon Business could potentially be twenty times that size and not trigger the disclosure requirement because Amazon is so massive now. I don't think Amazon's doing anything unethical. Why would they disclose competitive information if they don't have to? Mm -hmm. Right. But it is, it is sort of structurally unfair, even though I don't, I'm not accusing Amazon of doing anything wrong. Um, But, you know, who knows how big they are? Nobody knows. So I went through their 10K and I searched for the words Amazon business. It doesn't appear anywhere in their 10K. They don't mention it at all, which frankly is more scary than if they did mention it. Yeah. Um, They mentioned the word distributors once or twice in sort of a long list of competitors. Um, But, where they just, you go through that 10K, they don't talk about B2B, which, you know, either means it's not that important to them, or they just want to keep it
1: under the radar. I think it's probably the latter. What do mm-hmm. you think? Yeah, I think that's right. Well, and if, if we look at where they're going, so that, you see, you look at that $125 billion in fourth quarter, you say, well, you know, if, you know at that run rate, and there are some caveats, at that run rate, they're at a $500 billion business. But the, the, the caveats are, A, pandemic. Be fourth quarter is is going to be good for retail anyhow, so I think there's a be be curious what kind of guidance and they haven't given guidance on growth for for 2021. Um, you'd be curious if they end up as a half trillion dollar business this year if they actually overtake Walmart in yeah, revenue.
0: I don't know. I mean, like you said, fourth quarter is always the biggest quarter for them because of the Christmas rush for their holiday season, and you know they had some pandemic related growth this year. Um, my guess is they'll overtake Walmart in 2022, uh, rather than 2021. But um, but certainly they're on the way, right? Yes. At this kind of growth number, they're going to blow everybody away. Um, and, I, and I think it's going to trigger discussions around antitrust at some point in time. Although I don't
1: think that's going to really <laughs> help. There, there was another interesting piece in the in the earnings call and in the report about both Amazon Fresh and Amazon Go. Um, Amazon Go is their retail offering that kind of competes with a, a mashup of 7-Eleven and the Whole Foods um, you know, counter where you get food. You can go into an Amazon Go store and you don't, even, you don't even make a payment. It just scans your card. You walk in. It figures out everything that you've got in your shopping cart. If you decide to put something back on the shelf, it figures that out as well. Um, these stores are about 3,000 square feet. There's no checkout people, so their their cost to serve is lower. Uh, they are now finally at about 25 stores. They had they had expected a much larger rollout, but it's a very interesting play from the standpoint of first of all, it's brick and mortar. That's not what we know traditionally about Amazon. Second of all, the use of technology in in gaining efficiencies in these stores. Do you see them doing something like that in B2B potentially? That's interesting. Um, I don't have a deep thought on that one right now, Ian. Yeah, it doesn't seem to fit to me, I guess. Now,
0: uh, we'll see. I I mean, I think it is interesting, and they're going to revolutionize a lot of that retail technology. And a lot of times, they move technology from one uh, industry there into to another. Now, uh, uh, MarketplacePulse.com sent out an email this morning, and uh, by their estimates, Amazon did $490 billion in gross merchandise revenue now in in the year. Now the the third party revenue, the Amazon marketplace, that 300 billion, Amazon only reports those service revenues. They don't report the gross merchandise revenue. So here's the, here's how this work works. If you have, you know, um, Joe's industrial supply and Joe's industrial supply sells on the Amazon marketplace. um, And they sell a product for a hundred dollars and Amazon has fees in place to get 15% of that. They would report $15 as their revenue and the rest, they don't, that is just gross. What's called gross merchandise, but, or the, 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 all, the whole sale is called gross merchandise volume. And so, uh, however, Amazon retail, that's where they are the merchant and they buy and sell. So they're buying, putting in their distribution center and then selling direct to the customer. Right. Um, and so, That is full revenue. So that's a full sale, just like anybody else would count revenue. The Amazon Marketplace revenue is just the commission that Amazon makes on the sale, right? Um, But the $300 billion is the whole gross merchandise value, all right? Mm -hmm. And last year, and I think it was for the first time in Jeff Bezos' letter to shareholders, he reported that 58% of total gross merchandise revenue was coming from third parties. And Marketplace Pulse is now saying that's 62%. So nearly two thirds of Amazon sales isn't coming from them as a merchant. It's coming from them representing sellers selling through their platform, which is really extraordinary because it was zero in 2000, roughly. And, and, And Walmart didn't get into this business, I think, until 2009. So this third party revenue is a growing part of Amazon's mix. And we think it's important for distributors to understand sort of the how that works and what it means for them so we put together a slide that explains um, sort of how the financial model works in a third-party marketplace not just amazon but any third-party marketplace so on the left oops on the left is a traditional distributor right so traditional distributor and by the way if you're on the podcast uh, I've got two models up on the left is the distributors model on the right is the third party marketplace model. I'll talk about the distributor model. First, the distributor has really two components to their costs. They have fixed costs and that's the stuff you buy that's long-term and it doesn't really, it doesn't vary with your sales volume. Then there are your variable costs. So these are your working capital, your inventory uh, among other things, Your picking and packing and ship costs and your any value added services that you add. It's your transaction processing cost to answer the phone, et cetera. Um, And so those costs vary. That's why they're called variable costs with sales volume, right? So as your volume grows, your costs grow, which means that even though you are leveraging and becoming more profitable over time because your fixed costs aren't growing, uh, your variable costs are eating up a lot of the difference. So you do become gradually more profitable in a distributor or retailer's model. But you know your 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 variable costs are going up with your sales, so that gap is not growing particularly fast. So you you're, you're going to be more you know in a normal business you're going to be more profitable on a percentage basis at seventy million than fifty million, right? But it's not linear because you're you have a lot of variable costs that are going up with your sales. Okay. On the right hand side, uh, I've got what I call a third party marketplace model. Right. What that shows is that Amazon when it's serving when third party sellers are selling on Amazon Amazon really has no variable costs okay so they've got this huge platform they've got this website they've got this demand generation system every distributor who's on our call right now right and we got a bunch of them every distributor who's on our call right now could add their products to Amazon as, and sell through Amazon tomorrow and Amazon's costs would really not go up at all there might be a one time charge or one time expense for them to load all those products into the system but after that every sale cost them nothing because they're generating the demand online but that doesn't cost them any extra they already people are coming to them and searching for products and then when they get the order they're sending it off to the distributor and the distributor is doing the picking and packing and shipping and pulling the stock out of their working capital and and running their forklift and their labor and their transaction processing system and so the distributor is bearing all the variable costs and so the distributors profitability is the same servicing Amazon, well, it's the same model as if they're generating the demand themselves, right? They may save a little bit on marketing costs. But overall, the distributor has got variable costs and the transaction Amazon has none. And I think that's one of the reasons they love this notion of third party sellers, because it allows them to scale off a pure fixed cost base and become more profitable over time. Now there're a couple of implications here. One is that Amazon's going to get more competitive over time because their costs are going to shrink as a percentage of their sales, giving them more pricing flexibility. But there's also a bigger threat here, Jonathan. You want to guess what that is?
1: Um if they start working with manufacturers directly. Right. Yeah. Why
0: why include the distributors? Because manufacturers can do a lot of that activity themselves and distributors have taught them how, right? Because distributors have asked Manufacturers to do fulfillment for them. So, most manufacturers can fulfill small orders now. Um, And so, the ultimate end game here for Amazon, we believe, is that the manufacturer takes on the picking and packing and shipping uh, of the order out of their working capital inventory. Amazon provides the demand generation and the transaction processing and the customer service, so to speak. So, they're really splitting the distributors' value added. Uh, services between the two of them for simple transactions and they're also splitting the margin and the and the distributor is out of the out of the loop entirely and actually the distribution functions are split between Amazon and the manufacturer
1: well and actually in the operating income from Amazon over the last 4 years we can start to see the shift between you know a point or two of operating income to now for the year close to 6% 5.9% um so they're they're starting to shift significantly towards profitability. That's a significant increase over a four-year period in profitability.
0: Yeah, and we did a we just finished up a, a seven-part series for NAW, the National Association of Wholesale Distributors. You should go to naw.org/techwilltransform. Um and in that series we looked at uh, a bunch of we looked at 40 manufacturers who normally sell through distributors and we just checked to see if they're selling through distributors on Amazon and Amazon business, or if they're selling through them directly. And 30 out of 40 are already selling directly on Amazon. So this model on the right is really Amazon slash Amazon business and the manufacturer with the distributor
1: left out in the cold for those sales. Yep. So we have a, a good comment here from one of our, our listeners. Uh, Alex says, we see a lot of MRO industrial manufacturing distributors lagging and creating their own web ecom e-com platform or selling via a marketplace? By the way, Alex is from a leading OEM, leading manufacturer. What do you think is holding them back in light of all the evidence of consumers changing ways of purchasing behavior?
0: You want to go first? You go ahead. <laughs> so... Look, I mean, I think if if 2020 revealed anything, it was that if you didn't have great digital skills, you got punished, right? right? And if you had great digital skills, you picked up share. And so I think that distributors lagged because they could get away with it, and they paid the price in 2020, those that didn't have good digital skills. So I think it was a lack of understanding. I think it was Salesforce conflict. They would build these web platforms and then not allow certain SKUs on there or, or say call for price or other things that just absolutely killed their web, their their, their websites, right? I think in terms of th- they have to get past that. You have to find a solution to represent your whole value proposition online. It's not optional. This is what CEOs are for is to provide leadership to solve these kinds of problems. It's time for CEOs to step up and lead in digital, not, not allow it to be a sideline but make it a core part of the business because it's the world is the world is just there now. Um, I think in terms of selling through marketplaces, I don't really see the upside in selling through Amazon or Amazon business. I I mean, I think they're just going to learn from your data and you're going to give them a, if they, if they choose to, and organizations like the wall street journal are accusing them of already doing this. They're going to use that data to displace your SKUs with their own, and there's the risk that they'll just go to your suppliers directly. I mean, this whole FBA, fulfillment by Amazon, what value is the distributor adding? You're shipping your inventory to an Amazon warehouse. They're doing the picking and the packing and the shipping. It would be better for Amazon just to buy that directly from the manufacturer, have the manufacturer to uh, do the fulfillment directly,
1: right? And so, go ahead. Yeah, so I think you know I think an interesting point that you bring up here Ian is the, the simple transactions versus the more complex transactions. Right. I think I think a lot of distributors are stuck in the hey, we can't do more complex transactions online. That's not how our customers buy, but what they're missing is if you look at things like tools, right? Tools are great to sell online. Those are simple transactions. And so because they're because they're getting focused on the complex transactions they're perhaps discounting the value of what, of the role that digital can play.
0: Yeah. And by the way, there are marketplaces that are safer, right? Like Google's got a marketplace that right now, at least the last time I looked up is charging zero commissions for strategic reasons. Google feels like they've got to have a marketplace because Amazon is threatening their search traffic, different story. And so they, there are a lot of distributors selling on Google. Google doesn't, isn't a merchant. They don't have product managers and distribution centers and delivery fleets. And so I think they're pretty safe marketplace to sell through. Unfortunately, they're a tiny, tiny fraction the size of Amazon. I just think Amazon in the, in the short run is good for distributors and in the long run is a big threat. And yeah. so I would be careful. Uh, by the way, if you do have questions, please add them to the pile. Alex, thanks for yours. We try to answer them as we go. Um, anything else you want to talk about Amazon or shall we move on, Jonathan? Let's move on. Oh, wait, we should talk about, we got to talk about Bezos, the implications of him leaving. Oh, you got um, so I gave the opinion, I don't think it's going to change the thing that they're so strong and that they're, they're not a culture or a personality driven organization. He's built a management structure that's going to carry on and it's going to be seamless. What do
1: you think? I think so. I think, I think the, the, the engine is built and it's, it's running beautifully. And, um, the, the person that he's bringing in has been with the company for, from the nineties. So he's seen growth the entire way, um, and i am confident that he's chosen somebody who's internalized that well and is is ready to take the company to the next level. Yeah, that's how I feel. And I
0: also think, by the way, in this marketplace discussion, distributors need their own trusted industry-wide marketplace because the simple transactions are going there. You can't trust the the merchant centered marketplaces, and nobody else has any volume. So that's my view. Okay. Uh, next, let's talk about Granger. So we were, feverishly taking notes this morning and looking at their uh, press, their uh, earnings release this morning. You want to go through some of these results, Jonathan? You bet.
1: So um, they've managed through things, I think, pretty well. Um, fourth quarter sales were up slightly over fourth quarter 2019. Um, growth margins were. They saw some headwinds from the pandemic, uh, both customer mix as well as product mix. So. If you look at, you know, gloves and sanitation stuff and safety, those are lower margins certainly today than they were 10 years ago. So they saw some they saw some headwinds on the gross margins. Um, they managed their SGNA very well, and as a result, um, you know they 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 brought in a healthy uh, operating margin of 11% for the fourth quarter, uh, 10% for the entire year, um, and they actually grew the business. Um, so they're up to just under twelve billion um in the face of these enormous headwinds of of the pandemic.
0: yeah, one thing I would point out is that their gross margins um for the full year were just under thirty six percent thirty five point nine percent right And some of that was pandemic related, but they were already coming down. I mean that's almost that's like nine hundred basis points in year over year or or from i don't know seven or eight years ago what their margins were um and you know still down i think they were over 45% at one point that, that's during some quarters in their history so they've had this huge decline in gross margins with you know
1: intentionally, like, intentionally by the way
0: which I, I think is really smart i mean they yeah. were overpriced for the market and then in an in environment of increasing competition and You know, investor, many analysts, they, you know, they point to gross margin as, you know, it's got to go up all the time at sacrosanct, but that's not realistic. And and pursuing that path gets you to the point where you're overpriced and that's where they were. And so some of that margin cutting, which has to be paired with cost cutting, happened before DG McPherson got promoted to CEO, which I think was end of 2017, October, 2017, something like Mm -hmm. that. Um, But a lot of it, he drove, right? I mean, he, he had that and it's honeymoon period. You could, you could get away with like anyone with more things than you can after you've been there for a while. This is my interpretation. It's nothing he said, but so within his first year, he said, look, we need to, we need to cut gross margins. And I think that was essential, but they've also cut expenses. So I think they're down to a much more realistic level of gross margin that is sustainable. Um, so let me, let me, let me postulate this. If you viewed DG McPherson, I don't know, him. I've never talked to him. I just heard him speak a few times, but if you look at his at his tenure there, I think he's kind of finishing act 1, right? And act 1 was reshape the business, get the cost structure down, get the margins into something more realistic. Don't bury the company while you do that because if you mess up either of those, that's exactly what happens, right? And I think he's, you know, they're they're growing in but I think the next challenge for him is for him to figure out how to grow the company more rapidly, which is not a criticism of his past performance but it is a challenge for the future um, because I mean one of these days we're going to see Amazon businesses numbers, and I know Granger feels like they've got some pretty good barriers and they go after different business than the Amazon business
1: does, but certainly there's some crossover. And well, and in a sense, they're they're reducing one of the key barriers, which is they're they're rapidly closing branches.
0: Well, it's only a barrier if they add value in, way, in, in the ways that are important to customers, right? Point taken, yeah. Um, and so I remember, you know, I talked to a, a CEO of an HVAC chain one time who told me that Granger walking away from the contractor market, which is an overstatement, but putting less emphasis on it was the best thing that ever happened to, the, to his company, right? Because they all that over-the-counter business, you know, replacing motors and controls and stuff, that was really important to an HVAC chain. And Granger used to be in that business, and they kind of de-emphasized it to put more emphasis online. That was a long time ago. It was probably 10, 15 years ago. But but I think the branches in that role are a barrier because that technician with a dead motor needs it right now, and he needs help matching it up. And at least for now, that's a pretty good barrier. If you don't offer that kind of expertise at the counter or you don't do value-added services like kidding or labeling or uh, bin replenishment or whatever out of those local branches, then they they're not differentiating. They're just they're just expensive brick and mortar. Because um, you you look at Fastenal a, a lot, Jonathan, right? And they 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 do they've kind of re re they've kind of transformed their branches too, as I understand it.
1: Yeah, they're they're making a shift to really two types of branches: a traditional branch where you walk in that's full service. Uh, But then really it's a second type of branch that doesn't have a, they they call it backdoor branches. There's not really a a showroom. You don't walk in the front and they're transforming it so that you go pick up an e-commerce order, almost like a will call. Um, And and maybe it's even more like a DC, but the point is it's not a, it's not a full service branch. Um, And they're finding that to be much more efficient for their growth in e-commerce, which by the way, finally hit uh, above 10%. They they announced that as a milestone.
0: Yeah, and Granger divested Fabry and Granger China last year, which I think was important. I think they still own Cromwell in the UK, uh, which is sort of the UK version of Granger, big MRO distributor. Um, and they believe that in 2020, they outgrew the MRO market by 800 basis points, which is pretty significant. They're not offering guidance for 2021 yet. Um, I was taking notes during the call, and I think they said that in january they grew 9% over prior year. Did you hear that? I did hear that. I think that was the number, but they're still expecting the first quarter to come in at 3 to 5%. So you know, like this is a as always a well-operated company. They generate a ton of cash, right? They generated 1.1 $1. $1 billion dollars in operating cash flow. They've got good healthy margins, right? They've navigated through this pandemic, I think very well. Uh, the challenge is, can they find a way to grow even faster? Because they did—they had a brief mention of Zoro, which that they've added two and a half million SKUs. They've got over six million. Zoro does have a third-party marketplace. My impression is that they need to move faster with it than I see them moving. Do you have a do you have an impression on that?
1: Absolutely the same.
0: Yeah. So yep. you just don't hear much about it. I mean, I, I just don't. I know they're trying to add third-party sellers, but it doesn't. I'm not sure why they aren't going faster. Maybe they're just not ready. But I would like to see, uh, you know, if Granger wants to compete with the Amazon business, I think Zorro has to move faster with their third-party marketplace. Maybe they don't want to do that. I guess we'll see. Moving on.
1: Applied industrial technologies. Yeah. So, go ahead. So, the numbers quarter over quarter, fourth quarter of 2020 versus 2019, they were down just under 10%. Operating margins came down just a tiny bit. Um, margins, gross margins came down from 28.9% to 27.9%. So in terms of the, their share price, um, you know, the, a lot of companies took a hit sort of mid-year due to the pandemic. So they've grown share price 31.8% in six months. Um, but over the last year, they've grown, uh, 23.6%. So, uh, that's a very happy story there. Yeah, I mean, they've had, I think they've had upside surprises. So
0: good surprises versus analyst consensus predictions, five quarters in a row, something like that. Right. So they're, they're, even though the business has declined somewhat, they're doing better than everyone thought they would have, but it's really coming from acquisitions. So according to their, they have a really great investor deck on their investor page. If you're interested in this company, they've done 43 acquisitions since the year 2000 and 26 since 2012 representing over a billion in sales and their annual target is 100 million dollars of sales from acquisitions annually which would be about 30% of their growth goal annually mm-hmm. and that's a ton of acquisitions and they must be integrating them pretty well because they don't seem to be eroding much of their sales
1: well you know so, some for some companies acquisitions is a core competency and as we look towards some of the trends that, that we've been noticing, um, with potential consolidation, um, the companies that can acquire well, are going to be well-served with that competency.
0: Yeah. Actually, one of the analysts on their earnings call asked them, what are you going to do with all that cash? And I thought, uh, I think that's obvious. (laughs) They're going to go buy more companies because they've got like, I don't know, $290 million of cash or something on their balance sheet right now. Um, but what was interesting, so just for fun, I went into the earnings call transcript and I and I went and I opened their 10Q because th- this was second quarter for them because they have a off fiscal year, uh, cal- uh, f- uh, off calendar year, fiscal year. Um, so they just finished their second quarter and I just searched for the word online. I searched for the word web. I searched for the words e-commerce, e-commerce, e-procurement. None of those words were mentioned. I mean, there's one mention of web for like registering their financials with the SEC or something, but that was it. And so it was just interesting. You know, you have this whole earnings transcript with analysts asking questions. Nobody mentioned e-commerce or e procurement or online. Now they've got some online capabilities, but you know, what I would infer from this is this is a company that had a big sales hit in 2020, because they didn't have good enough digital
1: competencies. I mean, that's my conclusion. What do you think? It could be. I mean, the, the, the sector as a whole is not strong on digital. Um, if you look at the other leading players in the sector, it's just kind of representative of, of where they are. So, and by the way, that's not even a criticism. No one saw COVID coming.
0: Right. right. So yeah. the, the, you know, the, it's not like like oh you should have seen this coming. No, they they couldn't have seen it coming, and you know. But it does feel like it's just, it doesn't feel like as much of an emphasis as it as it should be. Um, we have another question. Let's see. How do you see Internet of Things solutions from OEMs expanding in the distri- distribution space? Will this force a new wave of upskilling, or will OEMs look to abandon traditional distributors? in favor of those who understand SaaS solutions, but don't necessarily understand the market slash industry. That's a complicated question. Are you reading this, Jonathan?
1: Yeah, I am. So we, we have done some research on advanced technologies playing in the distribution space between the distribution space and the end customers um iot did not come out as strong for most of those respondents i mean there were a few there were a few folks for whom it was strong um what do you think
0: i i think we should get alex on the phone and ask him more what he means um yeah. I, I think generally speaking um look i mean there are a couple of questions here about our the bottom line is our Supplier is going to integrate forward and sell direct. And clearly that's happening. We see it in all of our data, right? Mm -hmm. And they're participating in marketplaces directly. They're building their own marketplaces. They're selling directly and risking the the channel conflict. Um, And I don't think that's going to slow down anytime soon.
1: But but here's where there's a role for the channel. Um, To the extent that the IoT looks more like a managed service that's probably something you want a channel member doing either a distributor or uh perhaps a contractor between the distributor and the end customer um actually doing the monitoring and the management of of the uh the end customers infrastructure so if you think about electrical there are you know schneider has come out with a lot of stuff related to iot through their square d division um and they have channel members who are providing IoT services to end customers they also have channel members who are enabling contractors to provide those IoT services so i think there's a multi-layered management of the IoT things in certain sectors where where automation uh, matters yeah i
0: think that if i were a manufacturer i would work on upskilling my traditional distributors more than relying on distributors who understand SaaS solutions but don't understand the market or the industry? Because I think if you don't understand the market or the industry, you can't understand the customer's needs well enough to make the right solutions work for them um, is the short answer to that question. Um, So, you know, I I think, I mean, look, if you look at Applied, and they do much more complex transactions overall, right? They do a, a lot of stuff that they do is more configuration and engineering and I mean there's a place for companies like this and and I think you know to be fair that's another reason it's hard for them to, to do e-commerce because they don't do as many of the simple transactions i mean a, a much larger share of applied's business is in these more complex transactions i think they also sell into the oil field or in the oil mm-hmm. industry quite a bit mm-hmm. and that was down so I, I don't know that really applied did anything wrong last year i think they might have some barriers that they can leverage, but it'd be, in, this is, it'd be an interesting company to talk to about strategy because it's not a simple transaction business. They can't just put stuff on the online and sell it at the same rate that a Granger can, right? Because they're, they have more complex engineered solutions. Um, and at this and, and they they're in some markets that are suffering a little bit. So, and they're outperforming analyst expectations. So and they're generating a ton of cash and they're buying these companies So it's a really interesting case study because it looks like a really, really well-managed company that's managing a variety of thorny challenges simultaneously and still figuring out how to make a lot of money. So it's interesting. Want anything to that, Jonathan? Nope. Okay. Uh, The last company we're going to talk about today is
1: Avnet. You want to run us through the numbers here, Jonathan? You bet. So Avnet's um, second quarter sales, which ended December 31, 2020, were $4.7 billion. That's up a little bit from 2019. So they were able to, to grow. Um, operating margins were up uh, 1.2%. And then the gross margins came down a little bit. Um, the share price, this one also took a big dip in the middle of the pandemic. So you can see they're up 41% from six months ago. Um, down a little bit year over year. The total market cap right now is about just under $3.9 billion. So this is an interesting business. If you look at the, the comment there, the risk of supplier-driven disintermediation, Avnet, at least the traditional Avnet business, makes their money doing production supply. And so this could be, there's, you know, they're, they're, they're playing into a bill of materials that's 100 or 200 or 300 lines long. And some of those lines might be a customer needs a million items at two cents an item, right? I mean, it's literally that kind of um, just micro transaction that you, that you have with a lot of what they're doing. So, um, so I think in terms of the you know, where they sit with regard to supplier-driven disintermediation, there's real value there. I don't think most manufacturers want to be handling an order of a million items at two cents a a component. I don't think that's a business they want to be in. Uh, And and that's in contrast. So so Ian, you were VP of marketing at Newark Electronics, which was part of Premier Farnell. Abnet bought Premier Farnell a couple of years ago. That's a different business, right? I mean, that's not a production supply business. Do you want to to describe a little bit of that business? Yeah, so there are a few companies
0: like Newark and a lot of what DigiKey sells. That goes into what design engineers use to make prototypes out of, so there are all these electronics companies in the u s and the, and when they're when they're done with all their designs, the final products are produced in China or wherever, or at least a lot of them are um, but the prototypes are all made in the u s and there's a fairly substantial market i mean it's billions of dollars for electronic components to make prototypes and and, and do design work with. And there's also a pretty healthy market for electronic MRO products, right? So people who are going out to repair, you know, anything from stoplights to the conveyor belt at your grocery store, right? If they need electronic components to do the job uh, or, you know, machine tools or whatever, they're going to get it from a catalog supplier. So that's what we used to call it, like Newark or like, or like DigiKey. And as a result, those margins and that, that business model looks much more Granger-like than this. I mean, you, if you look at, you know, this is a $17 billion company with less than a $4 billion market cap, right? Because their margins are so small. Um, and I think Applied is over $3 billion in market cap. We just looked at them. You know, so these are these are small margins. And the reason I put that that risk of supplier-driven disintermediation in there is because people have been talking about that with respect to Avnet and, and Aero, which are the big two in production supply, electronic components, for 20 years. And I actually don't think that that risk has changed much. I think they still add a lot of value. Um, and you know, some of the analysts say, well, you know, electronic components manufacturers are going to start supplying the factories directly and newer technology makes that easier. Perhaps, but I think there's still a lot of value add here. I think, you know, the, these companies are, are always challenged on how they can grow their margins and grow their enterprise value, which is why they probably, I would imagine, why
1: they bought Farnell. Um but you know it's and, and and the margins in a farnell are are in the mid 20s to low 30s is that I can't remember I thought they were in the 30s but I don't 30s know. yeah so I don't so again the are, time are, time these are these are very very different models that Ooh. that um you know the production supply versus the sort of the designer uh, prototype world and so avnet is looking to integrate some of the the designer engineer focus at the higher margins into their business to serve both parts of the market,
0: right now I have a question uh, so, you know this is from uh, our friend brick. More companies are offering inventory solutions. Granger has engaged this philosophy. Do you feel distribution has to engage more on holding and managing inventory on their customers' site? Um, well, I think it's an option I, I, I think you know if you want if you if you want to Survive the onslaught of the various disruptors who are coming into the industry, particularly the online disruptors uh the closer you get to your customer, the better and so I think being on site with vending or you know integrated supply or bin replenishment or whatever really helps you lock in that product business so yeah, I mean I think you see it, you see it a lot and in, in the industrial segment, I think it's growing in some of the you know on the carpet mRO as we used to call it at Granger a million years ago um uh, you know, commercial stuff, etc. Uh, so I I would say, yeah, the answer is probably yes, you certainly should investigate that um, as part of your value proposition, because the more useful and essential you are to your customers, the more you play in their daily operations, including managing their onsite inventory, uh, the better moats you have. What do you think, Jonathan?
1: Um, I think that's exactly right. Um, the, the general category of VMI is something that marketplaces are less apt to do. Um, fr- frankly, it would be a, a high lift for them to be able to provide those kind of value added services. So this will definitely be moat strengthening rather than moat diminishing.
0: Good. Okay. Uh, anything else before we wrap up, my friend? I think we're good. Okay, good. Well, you have been listening to the Wholesale Change Show. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll be on again on Wednesday, February 17th at noon, Eastern, 9 Pacific. If you would like to reach us, I'm Ian Heller or I Heller at distributionstrategy.com. Jonathan is J Bine, J B E I N, at distributionstrategy.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to get your questions. If you would like to talk to us, we can do so on background or off the record, as they like to say. We love to get intelligence and input from distribution executives on the challenges they're facing every day so we can talk about them in a very general way on the Wholesale Chain Show. Jonathan, it's been a delight, as always. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for your time, and uh, we look forward to meeting you again online in about two weeks. Have a great time, or great, (laughs) have a great
1: day. Bye now. Take take care, everybody.